Well, good morning. My name is Michael Talley. I'm the college ministry director and thrilled to be um, proclaiming the word of God this morning while Scott concludes his sabbatical. Well, March 7th, 1882 was a monumental day for the small Appalachian town of Harlan, Kentucky. Two citizens, Bob Turner and Wicks Howard, got into a fight after a game of poker. Now, Bob Turner, according to this New York Times article, was a burly young mountaineer who wore his trousers stuck in his boots and carried a chronic bad temper. Bob ended the car game with a few drunken threats and stormed off to his house. Both men stewed on the argument all night and decided to settle the score in the morning. They faced off in the middle of town and Wicks Howard shot Bob Turner dead. Wicks Howard, just to make matters worse, a couple of days later was acquitted of all charges and he walked free. Well, as you can imagine, this upset the Turner family. Bob's brothers, led by the famous Devil Jim, fired back. And as I thought about this story more and more, I realized uh, an important lesson. Never get in a fight with a guy that's got a brother named Devil Jim. <laughs> it's, a bad, yeah, it's a bad situation right there. So the Turner boys fought back, and they went after anybody literally that looked like a Howard. They confused some other families and brought them in as well. Well, this upset the Howards. They didn't like just being picked off, so they got everybody together, and they went after the Turners. And in just a matter of days, the famous Howard Turner feud of Harlan, Kentucky, had spiraled out of control. A decade later, this war had cost 50 lives in a small Appalachian town. And we're left wondering, what happened? How did a game of cards turn into a feud that terrorized a mountain town for a decade? This has puzzled researchers and several options that have been thrown out. Uh, maybe it was a, a remnant argument from the Civil War. Something never got resolved and so they were fighting about that. Some people thought that it was due to their Scottish ancestry because apparently Scottish people like to fight. I don't know. I've heard that argument. I think they were testing one of the most powerful forces in the universe. Bob Turner and Wicks Hauer were testing loyalty to family. This is a powerful force, and you and I know it. Our family, our moms and dads and brothers and sisters are some of the most influential people in our lives. We will do crazy things to defend their honor, even if they absolutely frustrate you. They have an amazing amount of influence in your life. We teach this to our kids at a young age. We'll tell our, uh, instinctively, just kind of naturally, we'll tell our daughters, um, whenever we want them to do something, we use family language. Do you know what I'm talking about? We'll say, Audrey, don't treat your sister like that, Right? We use that, that's a bigger term for us. Don't treat your daddy like that because family relationships matter. We're teaching them family values, family relationships matter. Your moms, dads, brothers, and sisters demand respect and they demand our loyalty. This is a strong, strong value. Now it's very strong and surprisingly in a rampantly individualized society like America, in first century Judaism, this value was out of control. To the Jews in Jesus' day, value to family was absolute. You didn't question it, and you certainly didn't test it, and yet Jesus tested it. He pushed against this value, because in Jesus' ministry, the family was not absolute. Family was good, it was not the goal. In Jesus' ministry, the only absolute is Jesus himself. And so as we turn to Matthew chapter 12, you can go ahead and turn that way. He will demonstrate this position in a very strange incident. So go ahead and make your way there. If you have your Bibles, if you have your phones, you can pull that out and just don't check Facebook. We'll be in verse 46. 
this morning, 46 through 50. Now, it's going to be helpful for us to understand why Matthew puts this story where he does. The Gospels are assembled in such a way where that placement means everything. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is he's demonstrating one very important theme. He's greater than everything he comes in contact with. And he demands our loyalty. Even really good things, Jesus is better. Let me highlight a few for you. Matthew chapter 12, if you just scan through this chapter, verse six, you'll find Jesus talking about the temple and he'll say something, behold, something greater than the temple is here. The temple's a good thing, Jesus is better. 12 verse eight, for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. Sabbath is a good thing, but Jesus is Lord of it. 1241, behold, something greater than Jonah is here, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Do you see the theme? Jesus is greater even than really, really good things. He's supreme, and because of this, demands our loyalty. As you can imagine, this frustrated a lot of people. You can't just go around saying stuff like that without frustrating people. And you'll also see tucked in chapter 12, you'll see a death threat. People wanted to take him life for these bold and powerful statements. And so his mom and brothers come to confront him. Um, if, they wouldn't, if he wouldn't listen to the religious leaders, surely he'll listen to mom. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the text. Jesus is greater than all these good things, and now he's going to turn his attention to the family and demonstrate that he's even better than family. Read Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother, who are my brothers. Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here's my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. In this brief and awkward interaction with his family, Jesus tested and challenged one of the most powerful forces in the world, loyalty to family. And he turned down his natural relationships with mom and brothers and instead turned to his disciples in favor of spiritual relationships. He's transferring his loyalty from those who share his blood to those who share his belief. This is profound. It's a very difficult text, and I hope to demonstrate, too, that it's a very beautiful text. And before I break into the outline and, and give you the flow of the message, I, I feel like I deserve a bit, bit of an explanation. Uh, you deserve a bit of an explanation of why I've chosen to preach this on my first Sunday ever preaching here. Because sometimes I have to remind myself, why did you choose Matthew 12, 46 to 50? It's a difficult text, but we're in a summer-long series entitled Life Together. We're looking at what a biblical, gospel-centered community is supposed to look like. We've been taking all summer to look at this. And now I'll admit, in June, I was very excited about this series, right? When you take the buzzwords gospel and community, these are good words, and you fuse them with a Dietrich Bonhoeffer title, Life Together, it's going to be a good summer, right? We love talking about community. We're going to have fun together and go have picnics and have fun stuff. But then Scott opens up and starts teaching us what? gospel-centered community looks like. And it's tough. I don't know if you've been challenged. I've been deeply challenged by this this summer. Gospel-centered community means that we bear with each other's mess. When life gets messy, we stick through it. We forgive, period. We live a humble life of service. We open our, heart to our homes to strangers. This has been very difficult. And this morning, we're gonna look at the motivation for all of these unnatural affinities. Why do we act like this? 
because we're family. The gospel has turned us, changed us from friends and coworkers and neighbors to brothers and sisters. And that's why we act like this. We are a family. And so with that in mind, let's look at the outline. Matthew chapter 12, 46 to 50 can be divided into two parts. First, Jesus is gonna look at his mother and his brothers and he's gonna teach us about the natural family. So we're gonna look at this. He's gonna teach us about the role of the natural family. And then he turns his attention to his disciples and he's gonna teach us about the spiritual family. So let's start with the discussion on the natural family, verses 46 to 48. By the way, I'm using the ESV. 47, because of some manuscript issues, has been omitted, but it doesn't change the story. So let's read it here. You may have an extra verse in your translations. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied, to the man who told him, who's my mother and who are my brothers? Okay, it begins with a very simple request. Mom, brothers, they wanna to talk to him. This is very simple. Matthew doesn't give us much context as to why, but Mark fortunately does. Okay, so if we go to Mark chapter three, Mark is gonna demonstrate why they go out of their way to, to talk to Jesus. L read this with me, Mark 3, 20 to 21. It says this, Jesus went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him for everyone was saying, they were saying, he's out of his mind. Mary was worried for her son. She was worried for her son. You can't just walk around and say stuff like, behold, I'm Lord of the Sabbath without serious consequences. And she knew it. He wasn't eating good, and so like any good mom would do, she loaded up the boys in the truck and she went to pick up Jesus, right? We're gonna bring him home. He needs a good warm meal, he needs a good night's sleep, and he needs some time to think it over because he's gonna get himself killed if he keeps talking like this. She was being a good mom. And I know you would have done the same. It's a simple request. Jesus, come talk to us. But he was undeterred. He, he didn't. And we should be glad that he was undeterred and he stayed focused on his mission because without that, we would be lost. So he stayed focused, but his response is very interesting. He didn't just brush her off and he didn't just say, not now, mom, I'm busy. Can I talk to you in five minutes? Can, I, can you leave a message? I'll call you back. Like, he says something much more pointed. He says, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? Like, did he have to say that really? Like, that's harsh. That's that's almost seems cold, doesn't it? Like why, did he, why did his words have to have such a point to him? This is actually another plank on his teaching about the natural family. And I think if we look at a couple more passages about the natural family, we'll begin to get a picture of why Jesus makes radical statements. So if you will, backtrack two chapters and we're gonna read just a, a verse here that demonstrates uh, some, some more of his vision of the family. Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 to 37. He sends his disciples on a mission, but he warns them that their mission is gonna divide people. People aren't gonna like to hear what you have to say. Some will accept, some won't. Even it'll divide families. Listen to what he says. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The message divides, even these strong relationships. Backtrack two chapters more, Matthew 8. 
Man, he wants to follow Jesus, a potential disciple. He really, really wants to. And he has one simple and legitimate request. Can I bury my dad? I think all of us in here would say, yeah, bury your dad and come follow me after that. Listen to Jesus' response. Matthew 8, 21 to 22. He said, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is heavy. Why, why the need for the harsh statements? Why? Was he discrediting the family unit? Was he saying no more family, you don't need family anymore? No, absolutely not. I think the rest of the gospels can teach us that Jesus affirms parenting. He affirms the marriage relationships. He even loved Mary, right? As he died on the cross a few chapters later, what is he gonna do? He's gonna look down and provide for Mary. John, take care of her. Mary loved Jesus. Jesus loved Mary. Mary loved, or Jesus loved his brothers. Eventually, they're going to come around and they're going to be the leaders of the Jerusalem church. They're going to write New Testament letters. They're going to die for their faith. They loved him. He loved them. Is he discrediting the family unit? No, not at all. Not at all. So why the harsh statements? Why did he distance himself from Mary and her brothers? And why did he break their trust and deny their request? And why did he ask us to do, do the same? Why? He was reinforcing the theme of Matthew 12, which says, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better, I'm better. And the theme of his entire ministry, Jesus is supreme. He's greater. He's greater than our families. He demands more loyalty than we give our families. And so what does this mean for your family? How can you, in a good, gospel-centered family, reconcile Jesus' very harsh statements and still live a gospel-centered life in your family? How can you reconcile the two? Do you get a divorce or drop your kids at the shelter? No, please don't. It's not a good idea. That's not obeying Jesus' request. This is one simple bit of advice. Use the intimacy and the strength of your family relationships to direct your family's loyalty and focus to Jesus. Use the strength and intimacy of your family relationships to direct their focus and attention to Jesus. It's a great opportunity. Now, this is harder than it sounds because our world has inverted the focus of the family, and the focus of the family is what? The family. It's us. It's all about the family. It's all about us. The spouse is someone who makes your wildest dreams come true and fills you with eternal bliss. Your kids are these angelic little beings who deliver you trophies every weekend and straight-A report cards and make dad proud. Your home is a factory of happiness that just keeps the happiness coming. It's all about us. It's all about us. And no wonder the family is in bad shape. We're putting too much on it. It was never meant to bear that much load. The family is certainly a gift from God for our enjoyment. I hope you love your family. And I hope they do bring you happiness. That's why the family was created. For our enjoyment and our happiness. But have you ever considered the fact that the family is a temporary institution? It was created and it will dissolve. In heaven, we will not have husbands and wives because we will all gather as the bride of Christ. We won't have sons and daughters because we will gather as sons and daughters of our great father. The family unit will cease to exist. It is a temporary institution that is meant to fill a temporary need. When we put too much on it, 
And when we ask it to do too much and fill us like only God can fill us, you will soon notice cracks in the foundation. Can't put too much on the family. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. But don't focus on the family. Focus on Jesus. This is the brilliance of Jesus' teaching. When you take your focus on him, you would think that your family is going to fall apart. But it doesn't. It makes your family strong to focus your attention and, and all your honor and loyalty to Jesus actually strengthens your family. It strengthens it. One of the, uh, my most favorite parenting passages of scripture in the Bible comes in Exodus 13. And you may be scratching your head, Exodus, really? <laughs> yes, Exodus 13. Now, if you remember, Exodus 12 is the Passover. You remember the Passover? Exodus 14 is the flight out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Exodus 13, which is where we'll be, Exodus 13 is the, ah, they're running out of Egypt, right? They're running from the, the Passover to the Red Sea. Whatever God says in these moments will be very important, okay? And so in Exodus 13, God establishes the institution of the Passover. Basically what God says here in Exodus 13 is they just, the, the miraculous events had just happened and they're running, looking back and God says, listen, I don't ever ever want you to forget what I just did for you. This moment will change the course of human history and don't you forget it. Every year I want you to reenact this and kill a sheep. Reenact this, don't ever forget, don't ever forget. Let this Passover be part of your identity. And tucked in there is this beautiful piece of parenting advice and it says nothing about children. It says nothing about how to raise your kids or anything like that. But it will transform the way you parent. Exodus 13, 14. When a time comes, your son asks you, what does this mean? Talking about them celebrating the Passover feast. What does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. The best thing you can do for your family is to focus your eyes on Jesus, fix your eyes on the cross. It's the best thing you can do. Worship Jesus and let your family watch. Worship Jesus and let your children watch. Let your spouse watch. Are you giving your children and your family opportunities to say, what is the meaning of this? What does that mean? Some of the best parenting advice you could take, right? What, what is the meaning of this? Do they watch you worship? Now, I don't have this figured out and I don't have a philosophy on this. I don't, I don't understand. I know it's hard. I have three kids, four and under, and we love a Wally Oasis. We take advantage of that a lot, and it's wonderful. Um, but sometimes we bring them in here, and we've had to make the walk. Some reason we sit like right here, and we have to make the walk of shame with a crying two-year-old all the way out. It's hard to bring little kids in here. It's very difficult, and we don't do it every week because of that. But we do it some because it's worth it to us to have those conversations in the van. What is the meaning of this? Why did you fill up a tub of water and take a dip? because God saved us. Those are some of the best conversations. Why do we have snack time after the service? What's with the, why do all the drink, adults drink grape juice? Let me tell you about the blood of Jesus. There's nothing better than to watch your kids raise their hands and worship because they're watching you. We want to let our kids watch, watch us worship. Are you giving your family opportunities to ask you, what does this mean? Allow me to restate the first point on the natural family. Jesus is greater than our families. And because of this, he asks for more loyalty and more respect. It won't destroy your family. It'll strengthen your family. 
But really, this is the first half of the message. This is only a, a point he's making. I think that the heart of this text is what he's about to do with this group of the disciples. It's not necessarily what he's doing with his mom and brothers. I think it's more what he's doing with his disciples because he turns his attention now on the spiritual family. And this is profound. Read it with me. Verses 49 to 50. And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my brother, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. This is simply amazing. After leaving his mom and brothers, his actual mom and brothers outside waiting, he turns and he says to Peter and Philip and Thomas, you're my true family, my true family. It's a profound moment in human history. He's redefining relationships. He's transferring our loyalties from those who share our blood to those who share belief. The message is startling. If you believe, you belong. If you believe, you belong to a new spiritual family that's greater than anything you can imagine. Now this scene is difficult in one sense because he's got his family outside, but it's beautiful because he's integrating this new family. It's difficult and beautiful. And I like to think of this scene as really a microcosm of discipleship. Discipleship is costly and it is filled with incredible rewards. It's costly because if you think of Jesus calls the discipleship, it means that you, if you take them seriously, it may mean that you have to sever a relationship with a family member. You may not have a place to lay your head tonight. You may not be able to attend your dad's funeral. You, you may not, you may have to sell all your possessions. You may be persecuted and handed over to the authorities and beaten and flogged and even killed. Following Jesus is costly. Ask his mom and brothers outside. It's costly. But it's beautiful because he turns to his disciples and he says, here is my true family. The rewards of discipleship are great. The call to discipleship is not a call to isolation. It's not a call to radical isolation. We have a spiritual family with us on this journey. Listen to these encouraging words that Jesus gave Peter. Peter, after the rich young ruler walked away, because the rich young ruler saw the cost of discipleship and he was out of there. And Peter's thinking, well, we, I've given up everything. And kind of this desperate plea to Jesus, he says, Lord, we've given up everything. And this is as the rich young ruler is walking away, Jesus tells Peter this statement. Truly I say to you, there's no one that has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers. This is in Mark 10, by the way, 29 to 30. There's no one that has left brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold times now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Following Jesus, yes, it's costly, but the rewards are great. If you be believe in Jesus, you belong into a new spiritual family that is greater than anything we could have conceived. This is the great thing. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he did not leave 12 radical, isolated, sold-out individuals to go run across the world and do their thing. Jesus left behind a family the disciples, the women that had been following Jesus, they looked out for each other. 
They cared for each other. They took care of each other's needs. They treated each other like brothers and sisters. And this is why, I'm confident, this is why that even though they were getting killed every day for their faith, people keep jumping on this ship. Like, have you ever thought about how crazy that is? That people, you, you know that you're going to get eaten by a lion or killed, persecuted. And people keep joining. They couldn't put out the fire of the church because they saw the family that was the church. And this is the family that the world craves, that you and I desperately need. This belonging, this love, this family connection. That's the church. That's us. Can we say the same 2,000 years later? I, I think we've done a good job of cultivating strong individual relationships and even families. I'm very encouraged by this. But we're called to something higher. We're called to be a family and to cultivate this family. We need to expand our vision and... and <clears throat> cultivate this family. I want to briefly highlight four different ways that we can apply this, that we can look out for each other. This won't be exhaustive by any means, but I, I hope to just get your thoughts rolling and, and get, get your mind thinking of different people that we can particularly look out for. First, some of you have left your families for the sake of the gospel. You, you saw Jesus and you believed and your family said, well, you can leave. That happens. And two things I want to say to you. First, you're, you're welcomed here. You're, you're not alone. You don't have to float through life by yourself. You, you're welcomed in this family. And second, we will join you in praying for your family because we know that relationship means everything. It means a lot. So we're going to pray for you. But in the meantime, you are welcomed here as family. Second, some people are here and have been separated from their families because of tragic death. And I don't mean to downplay the tragedy of, of this because it hurts. Any way you look at it, it hurts. We, we can't fully process it. But let me just say this and encourage you this way. In the ancient world and really in parts of the world today where people have kids for social security and you get married for social security, if a, if a spouse dies you're often left completely alone. And it was tragedy, pure tragedy. But, but it's never been that way in the church. The Bible makes very clear instructions to look after widows. And we need to do that. We need to look for those people, particularly that have lost family, to death. And I know people grieve in different ways and we have to respect that, but let us make strides in whatever ways that we can to care for our grieving brothers and sisters because we are family and we need each other deeply. Third, some people have temporarily left their families to come to Boone and study. Right? In, a few, in less than a month, our, our attendance will swell with college students and it'll take you twice as long to get anywhere in Boone because college students will flood Boone and they'll flood this church. They're leaving their homes and now they call Alliance home. That's what I did. That's what half of our staff here did. We came to Alliance and we called it home and we're like, I like it. <laughs> Let us open up our homes and our hearts to these students. I'm very passionate about this. I'm very passionate about this. I realize there's a lot of reasons to keep college students at arm's length. 
there's a generational gap and you don't quite know how to communicate and you don't even know how to text and uh, what I, I can't talk, I can't text, right? <clears throat> They're only here for a couple of years. They're in and out. Let me just say this. We need to open our, our homes and our hearts to the students that are coming here. Laura and I have done this. Several of you have opened your hearts and homes. And let me just say, we're the ones that are enriched and we're the ones that are blessed. My goal as a college ministry director is to integrate students into the family life of the church because I'm convinced if a student comes here and learns how to act like family in a church, when they graduate and they go somewhere else and there's not a campus ministry, it doesn't matter. They'll know how to act like family. They'll know how to plug in and engage. And so let us treat them like family. I've never met a student that's turned down food, ever, <laughs> ever. So take them out to lunch. And here's one very, very real and very simple way that you can integrate and, and bring college students into your life. Last year, we unrolled a mentor program thinking we'll just try it out for a year and see what happens. Within a week, we had 50 people signed up and we worked all year to try to fill it. And we had a waiting list. We had 50 church members in relationships with college students and we had a waiting list of college students to go and drink coffee with you and to hear about life and to hear what you have to say about the Bible. That's awesome. They're hungry for it. And I hope that we can open up our hearts and our homes. They're coming soon. So let's do that. Fourth, some have delayed family for the sake of the gospel. This is a legitimate option in Christianity. In most other religions and most other places in the world, singleness is, is scorned because family is absolute. And if family is absolute, if you don't have a family, you're not complete. And this is just not the case in Christianity. You can be here without a, a, a spouse and children and still be very, very, very welcomed in family life. And in fact, lead the way. I find it very interesting that the Bible gushes over single people. It just, it, it almost, I mean, it just assumes that single people know how to live and take every opportunity for the gospel. You have so many opportunities, so many opportunities. The Bible actually has to give married couples special instructions because life gets complex with family. And if our goal is Christ, it gets complex. And so married people have to have the, the special instructions. Single people, y'all just go and lead that's what the Bible teaches about singleness. And I feel like we flipped it. I get, the, I get the sense that single people today feel very lonely in the church. They're, they're just waiting. You can buy a billion books on marriage, but the only ones on single is how to prepare for that special someone, right? And we just can't be that way. We, we, we have to welcome them into our family lives. And so my call to the church is just open your hearts and homes and you will not be disappointed. Single people, open your apartments and your homes to families and let us act like family. Join a small group. Lead the way. There's many other reasons people are here without families. Maybe your family's fallen apart for some reason. Broken families, I hope you feel very loved here. If you believe, you belong. Maybe you have a military assignment or traveling a lot or a sickness. We don't know. There's, there's so many reasons, but the point is, here, is, is the same we're the family of God and we take care of each other. Let me go one further. If you're part of a nuclear family that's Christ exalting and good, you're not enough. The best way that you can cultivate and teach loyalty to Jesus in your homes is to open them up to the family of faith. Show that you care for people and that you're opening them up and it's, family is bigger than you. 
Let me very, very briefly illustrate some of the joys of this. Before we came to Alliance, Laura and I, we lived at TVR Christian Camp. And one of the cool things about camp is that you, there's several married couples, family, families, and a lot of singles. And you just kind of, it's not uncommon to have singles in your house and out of your house. And you just acted like family. And we didn't even think that it was weird. We just kind of invited tons of people in all the time. One guy that we particularly just attached with is now our youth associate, Seth Hooper. He was on staff at TVR for three summers, and he was my assistant. We worked together closely, but it wasn't just a working relationship. Seth would get to camp a week early and crash on our couch. He'd drink all of our coffee. He'd eat salads with us every night of the the week. Um, We fell in love with Seth, and it wasn't a working relationship. It was a family relationship. He was there when we fed Audrey her first bite of food, and he was taking pictures and fed her. It was just fun. We really enjoyed Seth. Whenever he would go back to Moody, um, he would stay in touch with us. He'd send the girls' birthday cards, and literally seven cents would drop out. <laughs> Cheap college kids, but we still loved them. <laughs> Our small family was thoroughly enriched, thoroughly enriched. And Seth was part of a great family, but he was leaving him for the summers, and we welcomed him in. That's what we do. We welcome people in. I, you'll be enriched. If you're not doing that, don't deny yourself opportunities to welcome people in your family. We're excited that he's with Beck and we can't wait to hold that little baby. We're so excited. Now, I realize this is not a groundbreaking illustration. There's nothing at stake. You can do this or you don't have to. Um, you might even hear this and say, that sounds fun, but I don't have any time. Don't you know how busy I am? I don't have time to open my home up to the family of faith. In fact, acting like the family of God in a stable society like America with social security and with insurance policies, it can almost be inconvenient, can't it? We have every need taken care of. We don't need each other. It's like the family of God almost, it's not like brothers and sisters in this room, it's like maybe distant cousins and great aunts and uncles where you feel some sort of obligation, but it's not ultimately necessary. Nothing's at stake. This is not an option. We can't adopt this attitude. We need each other. How do you think people get by in places in the world that do happen right now? Iran, Sudan, where if you, if you believe in Jesus, it might mean going to jail. It might mean that you lose a family member. How do you get by the family of faith? Let's not wait for things to get bad to start acting like a family. It's not an option. It's our identity it's who we are. How can we achieve this vision? How can you and I, who without the cross of Christ are isolated and hostile to each other and to God, how can we act like brothers and sisters? We must be brought together. The only way that we achieve this vision of the family is to mutually fix our eyes on Jesus who left his father willingly to die so that he could call us brothers. It's amazing. Let us fix our eyes on Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us open our hearts and our homes to the family of faith. The blood that Jesus shed is so much greater than the blood that runs through our veins. If you believe, you belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We're reminded this morning that we were orphans, all of us, helpless, 
lonely, unlovable, hostile. We were by nature objects of wrath. And you left your father, Christ, to come and die for us and adopt us into your family. We now call you father and we call people who believe brothers and sisters. Lord, would you enlarge our hearts this morning? Would you help us to Embrace this vision of the family that you have called us into. God, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.